a forgiveness survey. These questions were asked in a national survey, polling people's opinions, attitudes about forgiveness, what they thought it really was, and so on. And I thought it might help us to get into the subject a little this morning if uh, we would take this survey before I begin. Uh, and, and by the way, it will also help you if you, uh, if you will actually mark on this. Get a pencil or a pen or something and, uh, and mark your answers here, how you, how you respond to these statements. There is someone in your life who has hurt you in a way that you find very difficult to forgive. Do you strongly agree with that statement? Disagree? Whatever. Someone who has hurt you in a way you find difficult to forgive. Number two, you believe that God, is that God is ultimately responsible for allowing pain and hurt in your life. You could make a case for that one way or the other, perhaps. Do you agree with that or disagree? Number three, you cannot honestly forgive someone unless that person shows some remorse for what they did. You think that's an accurate description of forgiveness or not accurate? Number four, if you really forgive someone, you would want that person to be released from the consequences of their actions. Think that's what forgiveness is? Is that a good description of forgiveness or not? Number five, if you genuinely forgive someone, you should rebuild your relationship with that person. You should be reconciled. Think that's true? Is that an accurate description of what forgiveness is or not? Number six, if you've really forgiven someone, you should be able to forget what they've done to you. So if you, if you really, let it, really let it go, then you'll be able to forget it. You think that's true? You think that's what forgiveness entails? And number seven, there are some crimes, offenses, or other things that people can do to one another that are so bad they should never be forgiven. I think that's the case. What do you think? A month ago, in the Loveland Daily Reporter Herald, there was an article on Tibbis Kniep, a convicted murderer. And here's what the article said, a couple of excerpts. Nicole Holm was brutally beaten, stabbed, and sexually assaulted in her Fort Collins apartment September 1998. Police soon began looking for Kniep, who had fled the country. He was arrested in Guatemala in June of 1999. Nicole's father said, from the very beginning, I suspected this was a hate crime from the sheer injuries Nicole suffered. I've never met a bigoted man or a homophobic man that has as much hate in him as Mr. Kniep. Mr. Kniep took from Nicole the most precious gift any of us have, that is our own life. While I don't hate him, I don't think I could ever forgive him. Hmm? What about you? If, uh, if that were your daughter or your brother or sister, could you forgive the person who beat, raped, and murdered her? It's one thing to forgive a thoughtless remark by our spouse or, or a friend. We just brush it off, we let it go, but but does God really expect us to be able to forgive things like this? On the other hand, if God has anything to say worth hearing about forgiveness, then it has to apply to the hard cases as well as the easy ones. Forgiveness, like every other good thing in life, starts with God. And here's my thesis this morning. Experiencing God's forgiveness for ourselves both obligates us and enables us to forgive others. Okay. experiencing God's forgiveness of ourselves both obligates us 
and enables us to forgive others. Let's talk about the obligation first. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18. I want to turn there. Matthew 18 told a parable about uh, two men who owed something. Matthew chapter 18, beginning verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me! His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him in the very same words this one had just used, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. So let's think about our debt to God. The parallel, the story is pretty clear. God is the king. Each of us is the first servant who owes this huge debt. And those who have offended us are the second servant who owe us something. Okay? The, uh, the first man owes a great deal. The second man doesn't owe as much. I have here one piece of paper which represents what other people owe us. Okay? That's their sin. And down here, we have 120 reams of 500 sheets each of paper. This represents, in the contrast that Jesus sets up, my sin. Well, not quite, because a talent was worth 6,000 denarii. So really, we'd have to have 10 times this much paper here to make the right comparison between what I owe God and what they owe me. I would have put it all out here, but we didn't have that much paper. <laughs> That would have been really impressive, <laughs> you know. <laughs> See? And actually, as it turns out, the word that's translated 10,000 in here, 10,000 talents, um, that's not really a, uh, a hard number. How do we get this thing up? There we go. It's actually a, uh, just the biggest number that's expressible in Greek. It, it just means, you know, we, we would say millions or billions. Jesus is using exaggeration to make his point that we owe God a great deal more than anyone owes us. He's trying to get us to focus on our sin rather than on the sin of the one who offended us. And what is it that makes our sin, our debt to God, so huge? Why, why do we owe God so much? Well, one way to answer that question would be to tally up all our sins, all the sins anybody committed in their whole lifetime. So uh, we might record the gum you stole from the drugstore as a kid. We might record all the ugly names you called people on the playground in elementary school. We might record all the hateful thoughts you had towards your parents as you were teenagers. 
We might record all your self-centered actions as an adult, and so on. This could go on a long time, right? There'd be a lot of these things. And in fact, um, the Bible does say that God has recorded in his books everything we've ever done. But ultimately, I don't think that's what creates our debt that makes it so huge against God. I think he is much more concerned about the attitude of our hearts toward him. He created us to live in fellowship and dependence on him. We don't always do that. He loves us and desires our love in return, but we often just ignore him. He deserves our worship and service because of who he is, but we spend most of our efforts serving ourselves. So when we don't relate to him in these appropriate ways, that is an offense against God's glory. We say by our actions and our attitudes that we really don't think God is all that great in spite of what we say with our mouths. We come, we sing these wonderful songs, they lift our hearts to God, and then we go out and we just keep living the same old selfish way. Our lack of consistent believing prayer, for example, uh, gives the lie to all the songs we sing about how much we trust God and how much we uh, count on him to do those things that we can't do ourselves. Now, most of the time, we're off doing it ourselves, and we forget to pray when all else fails, and we pray. Our reluctance to give him 10% of what we make reveals our lack of trust for him to provide for us, care for us, and, and also our lack of gratitude for the things that he's already given us. Uh, the many ways that we have of, of saying less than the whole truth show that we really think we know more than God about how to run our lives, and we'll patch this over, thank you very much, and the whole notion of, of uh, repentance and contrition and humbling ourselves before others. No, that's, that's not the direction we want to go, even though God says that's the best way. No, we'll, we'll take it into our own hands, thank you, God. We'll do it our way. We can show the same thing with virtually every commandment God has given us. All our sin is ultimately an affront to the glory and character of God, and that's what makes sin so wrong. It's not just that, that our sin hurts us or hurts other people, which it certainly does, but ultimately our sin is wrong. It piles up like this because it is an insult to the God of glory. When seen from this perspective, we can see why Jesus uses this comparison of we owe God millions and they owe us a few paltry dollars. We owe God an infinite debt because he is infinitely good and infinitely glorious and we have treated him as though he were not. So the parable continues. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the first servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Indeed he should, and so should we. God's forgiveness of us creates a moral obligation to forgive those who have sinned against us. God forgave us all that. Can we not forgive this? Jesus drives the point home with his concluding remark. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Now listen to the punchline. This is from Jesus. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you. 
handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. If you're not feeling uncomfortable yet, you may leave. You obviously don't need this. <laughs> I just want the weight of that, I'd love to have the weight of this paper, rest on each one of us. Turn it over in your minds. Try to weasel out of the implications for you. Go ahead and offer God all your rationalizations, all your excuses for why you shouldn't have to forgive someone. And keep coming back to this truth. God's forgiveness of us morally obligates us to forgive those who sin against us. But, praise God for the buts, because God is a God of grace, his forgiveness does not just lay one more burden on us that we can't do. His forgiveness of us also enables us to forgive others. The root of all forgiveness is love. If you love someone, you find it much easier to forgive them. Your spouse, a good friend, lots easier to forgive them of their offenses than somebody that you don't know or don't like. Right? We just love them. We let it go. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Luke, in Luke 7, why don't you turn there with me, Luke 7 recounts a story of a prostitute and a Pharisee <laughs> in the same house <laughs> with Jesus. <laughs> Luke 7, verse 36. These two people, the prostitute and the Pharisee, had very different reactions to Jesus. And the story helps to illustrate the value of love as the motive, the key ingredient in forgiveness. Okay, verse 36. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Chances are very good this term sinner here is a euphemism for prostitute. So even in our culture, as enlightened as we are, prostitutes are pretty low on the social ladder. So we have a, some sense of the dynamics going on here between this person who, who is very righteous and this person who is obviously not. Okay? Jesus said to him, but Simon only thought this to himself, but Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Tell me, teacher, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. Hmm, sounds like the previous parable. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Pretty obvious. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled, Simon says. You've judged correctly. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Simon failed to show the three common courtesies that were due any guest, especially an honored guest. But the woman, the prostitute, did what she could to meet each of those cultural expectations. She kissed his feet. She wouldn't dare kiss him on the cheek. She washed his feet with her tears and dried him with her hair. She anointed him with perfume. Therefore, says Jesus, I tell you, her many sins, no question about that, no discussion about whether you're a better person than she is, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven, as we can tell from the fact that she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. So the woman has demonstrated her love in clear and unmistakable ways, and this is the sign that she's been forgiven. She appreciates what has been done for her. She had a lot of sins to be forgiven, so when she experienced God's grace and forgiveness, man, it just poured out of her. She loved much in return. Simon, on the other hand, didn't think he had much to be forgiven, so he doesn't love much. He doesn't love Jesus enough to do the common courtesies that anybody in that, cust that culture would do for a guest. And he doesn't love this woman who he thinks is a, she's a sinner. All he thinks is it's how scandalous it is for Jesus to be letting her touch him. He takes the role unwittingly of the first servant, the unmerciful servant in the parable we just looked at. He wants to hold her sins against her. He wants to see her punished, socially at least, for her wrongdoing. This parable illustrates for us the, uh, the biblical psychological dynamics of forgiveness. I'm going to use some other passages to kind of draw that out. Here's what the Bible says about how forgiveness works at the psychological level. Okay? The first is God loves us and sent his son to die for us. Everything starts with God and his love for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for us. That's where it starts. Then, secondly, we experience his love. When we come to him in faith, he pours his Holy Spirit into our lives, and we experience his grace, his love, his forgiveness. Romans 5.5. 5. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Next, his love frees us emotionally to love others. We love because he first loved us. Picture a pool table... All of us are pool balls, but we're very special balls. We are covered with little buttons, spring-loaded buttons. Some of them are love buttons, and some of them are bad buttons. Okay? When someone else bumps into us, depending on which button they push, we ricochet off in a certain direction, and we collide with others reacting to how our button was just pushed. You with me? If they respond, to, if they treat us with love, boing, we're off responding to that, loving others. And if they treat us badly, they push our bad buttons, and we're off ricocheting bad things into other people's lives. Jesus comes into our lives and pushes all our love buttons. <laughs> all the love, all the grace, all the forgiveness, all the acceptance that we could possibly have. Boing! And there we go, ricocheting off into the world with his love, loving other people because he first loved us. And then, lastly, our love for others moves us to forgive them their sins against us. 
Love covers over a multitude of sins. You recall one of the phrases that the Bible uses to describe God's forgiveness of us is he covers over our sin. And that's what happens here. God loves us. His love enables us to love others. Our love for them moves us to cover their sin. Thank you, Lord. Now, the crucial step in all this is our experience of God's love and forgiveness. I know from personal experience that you have to experience it, not just know it in your head. If his love is just something we know about mentally, conceptually, if it's uh, not something we've genuinely experienced, then we'll have our theology straight on this, but we won't be able to forgive others. We'll be obligated, because we know God has forgiven us, but we won't have the ability until we accept and really receive and experience his love. Paul prays, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's what we're talking about here, to experience his grace. And here's why it's so important that we do this. When you're a kid, you played on a seesaw, right? Teeter-totter? And uh, so up and down it goes, and this is a lot of fun. And then what happens when it's like this, and the one who's at the bottom gets off? See, and you always, that was fun to do. Right? Yeah. We, we did that a lot. But, ooh, kind of, <laughs> yeah, I can still remember that crash. The only way to get off the seesaw safely was if you both did it at the same time. Get it in equilibrium, and then both of you step off at the same time. That's how you do it. All right, now here's another seesaw. This is an emotional equilibrium seesaw. On the one side, we have guilt. This is the guilt we feel for our sin. And it might be real guilt. I mean, not just false guilt, not just guilty feelings. It might be we are guilty. <laughs> it's appropriate to feel guilty when you're guilty, okay? Um, but then on the other side, we have blame. Because we don't like the, the feeling that this creates if it's just all our own guilt weighing us down. So we attach blame to other people. And as long as we have, are blaming others equal to the amount of guilt we feel, then the emotional equilibrium is just fine. Okay? We're all good. But then, what happens if we're talking about forgiveness over here? And I'm saying, let the blame go. Don't blame them for their wrongs against you. Let it go. What happens if you do that? Well, if you were in rough equilibrium and you suddenly take this piece off, you're going to crash with the weight of your own guilt. It'll be very unpleasant. So the thing to do is both get off at the same time. Right? Get rid of the guilt at the same time you get rid of the blame. Forgive yourself at the same time you forgive others. Accept God's forgiveness while you're letting others go their offenses against you. So the question to ask ourselves is this. Have we experienced the forgiveness of God? Have we come to that place where we know with an ache in our hearts that we need God's forgiveness? We have run to him. We've been as honest as we know how. And we have received his grace. I know what it is to plead for forgiveness, but not to receive it. God was offering. I just didn't take it. Don't be like that. Don't do that. Allow yourself to lift your head in joy, to smile, to thank God that it's done. His word says it is. Take him at his word. Believe him. Take it by faith, even if you don't feel it. Say, yes, Lord, I receive that. I rejoice. My sins are gone. Sing, smell the flowers, enjoy the sun. 
I know it seems too easy. And if you find yourself buried under guilt a lot, you'll think, no, 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 can't do that. Jim, you got it? No. I have to punish myself in order to have the right to feel free. And I know you'll never feel free if that's what you're doing to yourself. You have to let it go because God has let it go. Let him forgive you. And then you'll be free to love and forgive others. If this is a challenge for you, as it has been for me, I want to encourage you to make it a matter of serious prayer. And you'll have to do it over time. You're going to have to push this. Pray until something happens. Just keep pushing it. And I'll just make a suggestion. Psalm 103 is great therapy. You read, meditate on, memorize Psalm 103. Ask God to drive those wonderful truths of his love and forgiveness deep into your hearts and to make them reality for you. We come this morning to the Lord's table where we see what it costs God to have mercy on us. The wages of sin are death. We owed God a debt that was going to cost us our lives. But in order to forgive us that debt, he absorbed the price into himself on the cross. Elders, please.